Okay, so we are going to go through the rest of these slides. Now, somebody pointed out to me that, like, these are much more dumbed down than the slides in the last three days, which is true. And I apologize for that. Um, it's like advantage and disadvantage, okay? Like, the disadvantage is that it's not quite going into the depth of what's in the catechesis. The advantage is that we'll actually, like, cover more of the spectrum. Um, and most fundamentally, like, is that first section, especially for forming our way of thinking about relationships, relationality, how to answer those big questions. Um, so I'm going to finish out this section and then talk on suffering, but we'll probably take a break after this section. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. So the pure see the body as making visible God's mystery. Okay, the pure of heart see the body as making visible God's mystery, which means when we say, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, that means if you're pure of heart, when you look at another person, you will see God in that person. Right? You'll see them as a sacrament of the person. You'll see their body as a sacrament of the person. You'll see the mystery of God in their lives. When you look at them, you'll see they know the same God that I know. So it doesn't simply mean if I'm pure of heart, eventually I'll go to heaven. It means if I have purity of heart, then I'll recognize God in front of me. I think it's St. Bonaventure. There's a quote that Matt Frad sent me the other day. Um, so I can't remember where it's from, but we were talking about how St. Bonaventure speaks of how sin prevents us from seeing the Creator in creation. Right? Sin prevents us from seeing the Creator in creation. So when we emphasize things like beauty, which manifest God's glory, we have to contend with the fact that sin in our society keeps us from seeing God's glory and beauty. So I talked about how when I was in Rome and things started to come into my life, I had all this junk I had to work through and I went into this depression where I was watching television all the time. I was in Rome for three years two of which I kind of lived that way. And I went to St. Peter's all the time. I went there for Mass, and I just walk in. This is a big church. And then I had this summer where I came back, went through therapy, totally unplugged from screens, everything, went back to Rome, walked into St. Peter's, and I almost started crying. Because it enabled me to see beauty in a way, and it had an impression, it made an impression on my affect in a different way, right? That was my experience of that. And it was a profound experience. So, like, this is a factor in our culture, right? It's another reason to encourage parents to limit screen time, to spend more time in real relationships, to spend less time in artificial relationships, because we stop seeing beauty. And we stop experiencing that love and communion within family life. And it happens very subtly and we don't notice it. Because if you've always lived in the cave, you don't notice the sun. To attain purity of heart, or to see God, we must contend with the system of forces within us. So we have to contend with concupiscence in order to see God. In order to gain purity of heart. So St. Paul describes the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh refers to the man of lust. 
Well, the spirit refers to the man of authentic love. And when St. Paul refers to the flesh and the spirit, sometimes that gets interpreted in a Manichaean way. Okay? Manichaeism remembers that heresy where the flesh is bad, the spirit is good. The world is bad, the spirit is good. Matter is bad, what is spiritual is good. And so we can start to think that there's a difference between the flesh and the spirit within ourselves. Like, I'm only sinning with my body, but my spirit is with God. And so the flesh, when we read that, we should understand it as the movement of the whole person in his body-soul composite towards worldly things. Okay, the movement of the whole person in his body-soul composite towards worldly things. That's what the flesh refers to. While the spirit refers to the movement of the whole person in his body-soul composite towards God. So it's not this contention like, I'm two people. Sometimes it feels like we're two people. But rather, it is the movement of our whole person in one direction or the other. Right? St. Augustine talks about those choices between the world and God. And so, the spiritual life is about saying no to the world so that we can say yes to God. And true freedom comes when we're able to say no to one thing in order to say yes to another. So when we made our baptismal promises, we say three no's and then three yeses. Okay, which is significant. Do you reject Satan and all his works and all his empty show? Do you believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church? Yes, yes, yes. And in the ancient ritual, somebody would actually face the West I don't know which way is west. I think it's that way. So they would face the west, reject Satan and all his works and all his empty show, and then face the east because it's the direction of the coming of Christ and affirm, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And it's a way of saying no to the world to say yes to our Lord. And when we renew our baptismal promises... Okay, this is a sidebar for talking about baptism. When we have that renewal of baptismal promises, it should be a moment in which we actually think about the fact that we're rejecting those things. Because for the most part, the faithful just sort of rattle off, no, 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 yes, 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 without thinking about the significance. When an adult is baptized and he is asked the question, do you reject Satan? He thinks about all of the sin in his life that he's ever committed. All the sin in his life that he's ever committed. And he says, yes, I reject that. Do you reject all his works? He thinks about all the sin in the world that's ever been committed against him. All of the works of the evil one. And he says, yes, I reject that. And all his empty show, or all his empty promises, he thinks about actively all the temptations and lies that he believed about himself in the past. I reject that. In order to turn to face our Lord and affirm our belief in him, which means our trust in him and our desire to place our lives in his hands. Every single time we renew our baptismal promises, we should do an examination of conscience over the past year and make a list. These are all the sins from the past year I'm rejecting. These are all the sins, resentments, things people have done to me over the past year I'm rejecting. These are all the lies that I believe about myself over the past year that I'm rejecting. So that when we reject it, we reject it. And we reject something tangible. And we don't simply say something pro forma. 
know, this last year when I did the retreat during Holy Week, this was sort of the fruit of that retreat during Holy Week. And I went home and I was like, man, I need to make a list. So I made a list and I like carried it in my clerics under my alb. And I did, like, I actively said, these are the things that I'm doing. And in fact, my experience was that it loosened something up in my spiritual life. Right? Deliverance ministries, what do they do? You make a list of all those things and you renounce them so that God's blessing can be spoken into your life. But that's not just something that's for like those unbound people that hang out in here on Mondays. Right? It's for the entire church. It's the practice of the entire church. It's just been insufficiently catechized why we do it. And if we really did that, like it might change something in our life. And this is something you can do from first grade to senior in high school. You have your little first graders make a list. What are the things you want to reject? Be like, punching my brother. (laughs) But if they do make that list, they get in the habit of making that list. And they start to recognize, like, this is why we do what we do. And my baptism was the beginning of a relationship with a person, and I want to renew my relationship with the person. So we have to move authentically from the red to the blue because of my diagram. Purity is not halfway between promiscuity and prudishness is what Mary Healy says. You know, because any virtue right, is the mean between the defect and the excess. Right? So courage... is the virtue. The defect is cowardice. The excess is like foolhardiness. I can't remember what Aristotle actually calls it. It's like imprudence and courage. I believe I'm capable of things that I'm not really capable of. Okay, so virtue naturally works this way, but... Purity is not halfway between the absence of purity, which would be prudishness, and promiscuity. Purity exists at a higher level because it's about being in right relationship with God. It's not halfway between these two things, or these two extremes. It's something higher. Because it's about that lived relationship with Christ. Okay, Within a marriage, it's not halfway between those things. It's the complete gift of myself to another that's an image of divine love. All right, so that we don't want to live in this realm of like where I'm grasping at the other person to fill up what's missing in me, but rather like this authentic gift of self that we make. That movement from sin to grace happens by justification. Okay? That's the formulation John Paul II puts in the audiences. That, that movement to purity of heart happens by justification. Justification is not only the remission of our sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. It's not simply Jesus who says, you're a sinner, but I absolve you, and now you're righteous. But it's the renewal and sanctification of the interior man. It's the real power at work in us to free us from the bonds of sin and lust. And we experience purity of heart to the measure that we experience the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Purity of heart always will bear fruit in freedom. It 
We're no longer ruled by our passions. We're no longer ruled by our desires. We're no longer ruled by our emotions. But as we talked about in the first section, we're able to make that free choice to give ourselves to another person. It's not a result of constraint or of our drives, but of the free gift. So freedom to sin is sort of the flip side of the freedom to love. Okay, we can talk about freedom to sin, which we have free will, but freedom to love really comes through in trusting our life to another person. Having true freedom to love can only come when we've surrendered our life to Jesus. So true freedom only happens when we have said no to everything else so that we can say yes to Jesus. And this is a true problem. Like the biggest impediment to freedom in our society, well, I'm going to say one of the biggest impediments to freedom in our society is the inability to say no. Because people don't say no to things. They don't make commitments to things. There always might be something better that comes along. That's why people make plans at the last minute a lot of times. You know, can you come to this parish event or this school event? Well, we'll see. And they end up saying, like, committing at the last... It's like, if nothing better shows up, then I'll be there. Instead of saying... I'm going to say no to everything else because this is really important to me. I was at a Knights of Columbus thing the other day and they had Family of the Year Award. So the family is being honored for Family of the Year Award. And they're involved in all these activities, da 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 But the family couldn't even be there for the Family of the Year banquet because they were at baseball. <laughs> and so while it's laudable that they want to be there for their child for baseball, like they could have said no to baseball in order to be there together as a family to receive Family of the Year. But I think that's pretty indicative of our culture that we can't say no to things and we don't say no to things and if it's free you have to have it <laughs> it's free you have to have it like hey have this free app it's great oh yeah I have to have it like, this is why kids can't settle on one form of communication they have to have six different ways of sending a text message why because they can and they're not really free. They're a slave to the app store. Because if the app store says they have to have it, then they have to have it. So I'm going to try to use this to our advantage. I have a call with Lighthouse Media later. I'm going to try to get them to give us free talks if we get people to put their app on their phone. So if you come on Engage Encounter, we're going to go download the Lighthouse app and type in Lincoln EE and you get a free talk on contraception. Because then they'll have the app on their phone and they'll be like, oh, I should get more talks. So it actually is a marketing thing for them. And it saves us five bucks a talk. So pray for that. I have a phone call at 3.30. Um, but we can't say no to things. This is, like, this is what the impediment to freedom is, is we can't say no to things. And it keeps us from making commitments. Freedom is negated when it becomes a pretext for indulgence. So it's not really freedom if it's a pretext to indulge in this, that, or the other thing. That's not freedom, it's slavery to our passions. And so the virtues are very important because what the virtues do is the virtues help us to have freedom to say yes to our Lord. Okay, the virtues just help us have freedom to say yes to our Lord. So on a human level, the virtues are important because they help us to have freedom to say yes to our Lord. They help us to have freedom to say yes to another person. Okay, they teach us to control our bodies in holiness and honor. All right, so temperance is the virtue that helps us to turn away from temptation. Right? It's the virtue with regard to physical pleasure. 
And temperance is a virtue that we really need to work on because we don't have a lot of temperance. We don't have temperance with regard to how many sports our kids play. You know, a family who only lets their kid play one sport a year, they're like tyrants. Oh my gosh, they're so bad. I was lucky if my parents drove me to practice when I was growing up. So temperance is turning away from temptation. And there's little ways that we can develop temperance. Right? Like the example I always use for temperance is like when there's a sheet cake on the counter. And so you like walk into the kitchen and you're like, oh, there's a sheet cake on the counter. I'm just going to take like one forkful. I'm sure you've never done this. So you like pull out a fork and you just take like one forkful of the sheet cake. And you're like, oh, that was really good. You start to walk away and you're like, ah, one more. And you take one more fork of the sheet cake. And then you're looking at the sheet cake and you're like, ah, I'm going to be discovered. So you just eat like a line across the pan (laughs) so that nobody will notice that you took one fork of the sheet cake. Right? So we often... We often tell ourselves, I'm only going to do this one little thing, and we end up eating a whole line across the pan. Right? Today, with electronics, this is the major problem people have, is I'm just going to check my email, and then they're like opening an attachment, and they're on the internet, and then like 20 minutes go by. You know, one of the biggest problems like, that my brother priest and I talk about is when we pray our breviary on iBreviary, because you're in chapel praying and then you're on iBreviary and you get an email and you're like, oh, wait, what was that? And you check it and like 15 minutes of your prayer went to reading your email. You can say, I read my email with Jesus, which is good, but it's not saying no so that we can say yes. Fortitude is the ability to endure and persevere. And I put here, the ability to endure and persevere in temperance. So, because temperance is this main virtue, especially with regard to purity, that says no to physical pleasure, right? Temperance, physical pleasure. But fortitude also is, it's a virtue, and long-suffering is part of fortitude, like the ability to endure a difficult thing. So, sometimes it takes fortitude to stick to your convictions about temperance. Prudence, making proper choices and avoiding occasions of sin, and justice, giving another person their due. Right? All of these are related to love and to purity of heart. And we should emphasize them right? as part of the overall vision for developing purity of heart. So in the audience of October 24th, 1981, John Paul II says, We must be committed to a progressive education and self-control of the will, of the feelings, of the emotions. And this education must develop beginning with the most simple acts in which it is relatively easy to put the interior decision into practice. So as we're teaching the virtues to our young people, we have to start with things that are relatively easy to put the interior decision into practice. Right, and developing temperance in those small things. Right, developing temperance in those small things. So you can point out, right, like putting your, whatever, you have playtime. So putting your stuff away. Did this just die? Dang it. Sister's on it. So putting away your toys at the proper time is a way of exercising the virtue of temperance. Right, staying on time, on schedule, is a way of exercising the virtue of temperance. Not spending five extra minutes is exercising the virtue of temperance. Not hitting the snooze is exercising the virtue of temperance. Right? Some of us, I'm one of them, I have no temperance with the snooze. Like I, Sometimes I plan to hit the snooze. Like I just set up my day, I'm going to hit the snooze. Which is really bad for you. And I know it's, I'm going to just say it's bad for you, it's bad for me. Because what do you do? When you go to bed, you have the hope that I'm going to actually get up at 6.30 in the morning. Otherwise, you wouldn't set your alarm for 6.30 in the morning. But you kind of know you're not going to get up until 7. 
And so you've already made, you've already failed like four times today. Before you even start your day, you failed four times. And so when I was working with somebody who really struggles with self-esteem, and I was like, what time do you get up in the morning? Well, I usually set my alarm for six, but I don't get out of bed till eight. Okay, so if you're not getting out of bed till eight, set your alarm for eight. Because then you won't fail six times already before you get out of bed in the morning. Because already, before you even get out of bed, you think you're a bad person because you didn't get up at 6.30. And so sometimes it can just kind of set us up for failure because we plan to hit the snooze all those times. Just something to ponder. All right, we have to set these things with attainable things. Okay. The parts of the body we think are less honorable deserve greater honor. So talking about authentic purity, John Paul II says, the parts we think are less honorable deserve greater honor. Right? Shame causes us to cover parts of our body, but those parts have greater honor because they reveal our call to image God in life-giving communion. They reveal our call to image God in life-giving communion. Okay, and so this is where like, we think about how do we teach modesty? How do we teach modesty? Because if we teach modesty, you cover those parts of your body because boys will sin if they see them you're teaching a young lady that those parts of her body are bad. Right? You cover the parts of your body that reveal our call to image God and life-giving communion because they're only meant to be given to the person that you decide to enter into life-giving communion with. We're doing a little better. And so, again... One of the points that I wanted to like emphasize today, and I was talking to somebody outside about it, is theology of the body is not a euphemism for sex education. Okay, sometimes people like when they hear theology of the body, they think we're talking about sex all the time, or we're talking about sex education. It's not a euphemism for sex education. Theology of the body is about how we relate and love as human beings in general, starting with relating and loving God. But when we talk about like this idea of modesty, proper and good sex education will help to reinforce the message of modesty because as a child learns why their body is like their body is according to God's plan for marriage and childbearing, then they'll understand like those parts of my body are for baking a baby and that's why I keep them covered until my husband or my wife sees them. And it can it can become more natural that way. Okay, it become it can become more natural that way. Because then it makes sense. And that should all be done by parents and I have resources for parents. Right? And I will come to your schools and I will give a whole like class to parents, starting with this and moving towards like this is why it's important for you to take this book home and read it to your child and have an adult, have a conversation with them to help them to move along. One of the struggles that we're going to face with same sex marriage talks is that unless we really are doing proper sex education with regard to how babies made, it becomes very difficult to argue against why two men who are in love can't be married. Because if we just use categories like, well, marriage is about two people who love each other, and when they love each other, and God enters into their life, but we're not talking about actually like the consummation of marriage for procreation, it doesn't translate. It doesn't translate. And there are some of our very faithful families who don't really, like, their kids are really naive and they don't know anything. Like, those kids can be the most confused about all of that. Because they don't really, because they don't have access to, like, what do two gay people do? Like, they just think they're friends. And they just think mom and dad are friends and the stork brought them into the world. 
Sometimes. So, so these two things, they go together, but when we teach about modesty, all of it makes more sense if we're doing that proper education that parents are supposed to be doing with their kids, right? And it is the diocesan policy that parents are supposed to do this education with their children, okay? And we have this whole education for love policy, and what we have been lacking in is giving the parents the tools to execute their part in carrying out the policy, Right, so I've been gathering resources over the past year, and there's there's a program that I want to bring in that will help, but I need like parents who are willing to become teachers of the program to the other parents. So, and that's going to be the that's kind of what I'm waiting on right now is like finding parents who are willing to be teachers of the program to other parents because I need them spread out throughout the diocese and not just in Lincoln. Okay, so dimensions of purity. There's a moral dimension of purity, which is purity as a virtue, there's a charismatic dimension of purity as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And purity does have this connection to piety. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The body reflects the image of God in the communion of persons. So unchastity violates the communion of persons. Unchastity violates the communion of persons. And I just call back to unchastity is really rooted in that first break in original solitude. It's rooted in losing our identity as sons and daughters of God. St. Paul says, glorify God in your bodies. Purity is God's glory radiated in the human body. We already talked about blessed are the pure of heart. So the pure, to the pure of heart, all things are pure. To the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So there's this whole section where John Paul II reflects on the portrayal of the naked body in art. He says, portrayal of the naked body in art demands a special responsibility it demands respect for the nuptial meaning of the body or the nuptial system of reference. So it demands respect for the fact that we're created for communion with God and the communion of persons. Because in art, the body can be portrayed to elicit respect for the mystery or it can be portrayed to degrade. And I'm going to read directly from audience 61 where he says, we should note right away that the distinction just made is important from the point of view of the ethos of the body and the works of culture. And one should immediately add that the artistic reproduction, when it becomes the content of representation and transmission, television or cinema, loses in some way its fundamental contact with the man-body whose reproduction it is, and very often becomes an anonymous object such as, for example, an anonymous photographic nude published in an illustrated magazine or an image spread to TV screens all over the world. Such anonymity is the effect of spreading of the image, reproduction of the human body, objectified first with the help of technologies of reproduction, which seems, as pointed out above, to be essentially different from the transfiguration of a model typical of a work of art above all in the figurative arts. So he compares sort of the transformation of a model in the arts to photographs that get spread out all over the world. Because when we look at a work of art where there was a model, you know, we don't look at the Sistine Chapel and consider, like, that's Betty Sue from down the street. Because the model is transformed in the image, and the image becomes this new creation that calls our mind to something more transcendent. And so there is this anonymity that happens and this objectification of a person when their image, their true image, is spread out all over the place. And young people today are doing this to themselves, like they're making themselves an anonymous image that gets spread out all over the place that they really consider to be disinterested from who they are as a person. Right? That's what Snapchat is. 
Okay, it's a silly picture of myself that's not really me that I send out all over to all my friends. And that's what selfies are. I'm going to take a picture of myself and send it out to everybody, and it ends up all over the internet. Right? And your kids should know that Snapchat is Snapchat owns all people's Snapchats. People don't know that kids are on this Snapchat. They're like, I'm taking pictures. Sending them. Snapchat owns all those pictures, and they will be used someday on the internet. They'll all be on the internet someday. Snapchat, I guarantee you, will launch a website. As soon as the secular laws allow them to, so that they can put up all kinds of horrible pictures of teenage girls. So as soon as the secular law says that as long as somebody is consenting and they're at least, yeah, as long as somebody is consenting, then you can put their picture up on the internet. It doesn't matter how old they are. Snapchat will put all those pictures up on the internet because they're just sitting on them and nobody's doing anything about it. So it's important to remember that because people think these things are private, but they're not really private. Right? And it sets up this idea of anonymity. And more and more, social media is a means by which people sort of put themselves out there, but nobody really knows them. And it leads to depression. It leads me to depression. I post an article on the internet, I'm like, how many people read my article? It's horrible. But people will judge themselves based on how many people hit like on Facebook or retweet their tweet. Okay, so such anonymity, by which, which, by the way, is a way of veiling or hiding the identity of the person reproduced, also constitutes a specific problem from the point of view of the ethos of the human body in works of culture, particularly in contemporary works of so-called mass culture. All right, so something for us to pay attention to. Okay, so when people ask, like, why because people will ask these things like why isn't the Sistine Chapel pornography you know like one it's not there in order to elicit an erotic response from somebody it's not there to facilitate somebody's arousal and two it's not actually a person that's being portrayed and so it's not taking a sexual act out of context for viewing by third parties which is how the catechism defines it Right. And so there's this line that gets quoted by John Paul II a lot, which is, pornography reveals too little. Like He says it reveals too little of the person because it just reveals their body. And there's no connection to them as a person. So anonymity, this danger of anonymity, is the divorce of the person from the body. Okay, we need to be about preserving the nuptial meaning of the body. There's a danger in viewing anonymous artistic portrayals. Okay, redemption of the body applies to both human relationships and our relationship with Christ. The theology of the body is an impact on how we approach others, but also on how we approach and experience Christ in the sacraments. So when we use this model of, like, this person is trustworthy, I entrust my life to him, everything is relational, this ethos of the gift, it also enters into the way we relate to our Lord and the way we relate to our Lord in the sacraments. Because the sacraments are the place in which our relationship with Christ is lived out most profoundly. Most profoundly. The sacraments are about a relationship. They're about a relationship. They're not just like magic Jesus comes in when we do the form. They're about a relationship. And we don't always like emphasize the relationship in the sacraments. I just read, you know, somebody wants to have a Christian band come, and one person wrote, make sure they don't give some kind of an altar call, and they're talking about sacraments, etc., etc., etc. Like, most of the time, a Christian band, all they do is say, like, who loves Jesus? Yay! Like, we all need to love Jesus. <laughs> I can receive the Eucharist because I love Jesus. And so we need to tie them together. So using that dynamic of you have like Christ who dies on the cross, is giving of himself to the church, the church in turn entrusting herself to our Lord, 
in the sacraments, we have these two sacraments that are repeatable. Right? Two. Baptism, not repeatable. Confirmation, not repeatable. Eucharist, repeatable. Reconciliation, repeatable. Anointing of the sick is repeatable, but usually it's at the end of life. Marriage is repeatable as long as your spouse died. Holy order is not repeatable. So, two sacraments are repeatable. They're the sacraments by which we maintain our relationship with our Lord. Right? So, the Eucharist is the sacrament by which Christ gives Himself to you. Right? He makes this self-gift. Christ makes Himself vulnerable to you in the Eucharist. And we can think about what does that mean that Christ makes Himself vulnerable to me in the Eucharist? Like, what does it mean about me? Like, if we think about, I come to know myself in relationship to another. I come to know myself in relationship with Christ. So what does the Eucharist mean about me? The fact that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that means that God, who created the whole universe, became man 2,000 years ago, suffered everything that I suffer, in the Garden of Gethsemane, came to knowledge of all of the sin of the world, then went to the cross in order to die for our sin so that I could be in union with God. But before he went to the cross, he instituted the Eucharist so that he would be present even now so that I could see this person face to face that did all those things for me 2,000 years ago. That means I am lovable. If I've ever doubted God loves me, the Eucharist itself means I am lovable and I have value. Because we only give our life for something that has value. We only sacrifice for something that has value. That means I have great value. That I am loved. And it also means that He is trustworthy. And so reception of the Eucharist is an acknowledgement of this trustworthiness of God. And when I receive our Lord in the Eucharist, I entrust my life to Him. The reception of the Eucharist signifies that I believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches. And I surrender myself to Him. That is why non-Catholics can't go to communion. Because it would be a lie for them to go to communion. It would be a false sign. The Eucharist signifies, I entrust my life to our Lord and His Church, and I believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches. It doesn't mean I'm part of the community. It means I entrust myself to our Lord and everything that He teaches. So, if somebody does not believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches, they should not want to go to communion. That's why we practice close communion. And we should be clear about that because like, it's about their own integrity and maintaining their own integrity. Like, I don't want my Lutheran friend to go to communion. I don't want him to violate his integrity. Now, the reason we practice close communion is not because we believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Now, it's also because we believe that contraception is a sin. It's also because we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. It's also because we believe that the Holy Father is the head of the church. It's because we believe all those things that we practice close communion. And we invite people into that. But the Eucharist is the pinnacle of the sacraments of initiation. And because the sacraments got out of order, we sometimes forget that the Eucharist is the symbol of the fact that I have submitted myself to Christ and His church and its teachings. Right? Because the sacraments of initiation, remember, are baptism, then confirmation, then the Eucharist. Baptism, then confirmation, then the Eucharist. That's the proper order. Right? And it makes sense. Right? It's the proper order. I make vows at my baptism and promises. 
then there's this sealing and confirmation. In the early church, these two things were tied together when possible. Then I have this sacrament, which is union. We can say it's actually one flesh union between us and Christ, which renews and strengthens the relationship that was established by these vows. So the Eucharist renews our baptism. It's the way that Christ continues to give himself to us. And then there's our response. right? Our entrusting ourselves to him. And the sacrament of reconciliation, from a subjective point of view, is the act by which I entrust myself to Christ's mercy. It's the place I make myself vulnerable in response to the vulnerability of Christ. Because I go and I say, this is exactly who I am. And make myself vulnerable to the mercy of Christ as he enters into my life. And so relationally speaking, these two sacraments are the way in which we live out that relationship of love. And so we go to confession in order to make ourselves vulnerable to our Lord, to entrust ourselves to His mercy. And it has the effect of renewing the waters of baptism. And so you have gift and response to the gift. Right? Gift and response to the gift. And we have these repeatable sacraments that we act out all the time in a relational way. Oftentimes we treat reconciliation like a vending machine. We go into this place, we rattle off our sins, the priest says the words of absolution, and we leave. So I've got no grace, I go to this place, go through this ritual, now I've got grace, and I leave. Instead of making myself vulnerable to Christ's mercy, encountering this person, letting myself see the look of love. Right? But for confession to have that kind of efficaciousness in our lives, we have to make ourselves vulnerable when we go. Right? We have to be vulnerable when we go. And sometimes we're not vulnerable when we go. No. And this is where, like our young people, this is what they do. They like hide their sins and they minimize their sins. They make the sandwich confession which goes something like, (laughs) so I was mean to my sister and I didn't pick up my clothes right away, committed an act of impurity. Then I was really mean to my dog and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You try to like slip in the shameful sin in between all of these other really pious kind of things that we say. And a lot of kids do that. When I do that in high school, they laugh harder. Um, So there's like that kind of confession. And then there's also the way of minimizing our sins and not confessing our sins by number and kind. So when somebody says, I'm just going to say this with regard to sexual sin because it's the one people seem to have the most shame over, they'll say impurity, but what they really mean is that they... You know, spent all weekend watching impure things on the internet, committed several acts of impurity, or it means they slept with somebody, but they just say, I was impure. So there's no vulnerability there, and so there's no opportunity to experience the fact that even though I've done all these things, our Lord has come into my life to transform it. So it's like when we were talking about Adam hiding in the garden. He hides in the garden because he doesn't believe it's possible that God will come and find him and transform him because of what he'd done. And we can be hiding in the garden when we go to confession when we're not really vulnerable. When we don't allow ourselves to be really vulnerable. And so there are ways of trying to help people to be more vulnerable or trying to explain that vulnerability you know, and this like goes also to priestly formation and how we are in the confessional, right? Pope Francis, the confessional is not a torture chamber. Um, I've been in a torture chamber, but I wasn't the torturer. 
Okay, it's not a torture chamber. It's a place of mercy. It's a place where we can go and say everything that's going on in our life, and we hear the words "I love you" anyways. Right in the liturgy, we have the same kind of dynamic in the liturgy of this spousal relationship or this relationship of father to son, because Christ like reveals himself the liturgy, gives himself to the litur- through the liturgy in the liturgy of the word, the readings. That's like this descending act, right? It's Christ speaking to the people. You know, that's what that is. You know, in the Eucharist, Christ's self-gift to the people. But even in the liturgical forms, the liturgy of the word especially is, and the readings of the Mass are, God speaking to the people. And Pope Benedict, when he was Joseph Ratzinger, in his book Spirit of the Liturgy, talks about the response to that coming in singing. Right? The responsorial psalm is the church responding to the word that they just heard. It's responding to the word that they just heard. So you have this gift and response to the gift. And when it's done well, it's beautiful and it opens up our hearts and it helps us to enter into union with our Lord. You know, oftentimes, and I used to be really critical of liturgical music, um, and I still would maintain the same criticism, which is that oftentimes what happens is the songs that are composed to sing at Mass are just repeating what was in the readings instead of a response to the readings. So the reading might be the bread of life discourse and then the church starts saying back to our Lord, I am the bread of life. So it turns into a weird dialogue. I am the bread of life. No, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Like, so we're saying the same thing to each other. When it could be composed in such a way that it is a response to the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. So praise and worship music. Although many people don't think it belongs in Mass, Praise and worship music tends to be a response to instead of a repeating of in God's voice. And it draws people into relationship with our Lord. Right? And these things should all like be within that context. So, like I said the other day, Pope Benedict, everything he did with the liturgy is really rooted in his anthropology and rooted in the anthropology of John Paul II. So all of the liturgical practices that he's put in place, they have their root in this relationality that stems from a Trinitarian anthropology. Okay. All right. We will take another break. So that's the end of these notes in this section. When we come back, I'm going to talk specifically about how we understand human suffering and do something else with this.